Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. Um, if you weren't here the last couple of weeks, this will be brand new to you. If you were, this should just be reviewed. Just give you three sentences. The first parable we looked at was the parable of the talents, and our, our takeaway from it was when it comes to how we handle money, disciples of Jesus understand. You know, disciples are, we are people who have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, and we are people who the Holy Spirit has us on a spiritual journey. We're gradually, day by day, we're on a journey towards being Christ-like. That's, that's our journey. A little bit every day, the Holy Spirit's working on the inside of us to make us into the person that Jesus is. As disciples of Jesus, we understand when it comes to money and resources, we are the stewards, we're not the owners. God entrusts us all with a different amount of money, opportunity, skills, talents, and we understand that we're stewards. He's loaned those things to us for us to use, to enjoy, so we can live, so we can use them to exchange for the things we need of life. But we also understand that as stewards, they ultimately belong to God, and one day we'll give a report and account. So when we, when we handle money, we don't treat it like we're the owner, we treat it like we're the stewards. The second thing we learned was we looked at another parable, the parable of the shrewd manager, and we learned that we're wise to use our current resources, the things you have today, to prepare for your future. So it's wise for you when you think about the money that you do have to put some of it aside for your future. But more importantly, it's wise for us to understand that every resource you have on this earth is expiring. And it's wise for you to use the resources you have today to prepare for your eternal future as well. And then last week, we looked at the parable of the rich fool and we learned this. Experiencing the good life on this earth The best way, the perfect way, is through godly contentment. It's not through wealth accumulation. In other words, it's not he or she who dies with the most toys wins. It's not a certain amount of money or stuff or uh, wealth is what's going to lead you to the good life. We understand as disciples of Jesus that you don't live the good life, the peaceful life, the satisfied life, by achieving a certain amount of accumulation. We receive that only through godly contentment, which, suppli- which is supplied uniquely by our relationship with Jesus. Today, we're going to look at one additional parable, probably the one of the four that I've been most familiar with, and probably you are too, right up there with the 10 talents. We're going to look at that one today. And there's a lot of cultural things going on in this scene that if you didn't grow up in the first century in the ancient Near East, you probably would miss some of this. If you did grow up in the first century, please see me afterwards. You've broken some type of record, and I would like to know uh, more about your story. But if you want to get a little bit more of the detail, some of the books that I looked at, the research that I've done compiled Uh, in a more thorough manner, some more of the detail and the rabbit trails of this passage, you can scan that QR code and you can download the full study guide that I put together in preparation for today's sermon. I won't be teaching on all of it, probably not even half of it, but it's there for you if you would like it. And if you don't want it, you don't have to have it, but it is there available to you. Today's uh, parable, it's in the seventh chapter of Luke. Like I said, here's the occasion. It's a story that's inside of a scene. And the scene is a banquet. It's a big banquet. It's a combination of VIPs and whatever the opposite of that is. 
I's, V's, just P's. I don't know. I'm not sure. It's invited, important, inner circle guests, and then kind of standing room only. If you went to a baseball game, you can buy a ticket that, that says on it, S-R-O, standing room only. In other words, you can get in, but they're the cheapest seats in the house. You don't even get a seat to sit in. You just can stand anywhere they tell you you're allowed to stand, standing room only. So it's a banquet, and it is thrown by a man named Simon, who is a Pharisee. Only the Pharisees get the good seats around the table. With one exception, there's an additional guest of dishonor that is invited to attend the banquet. And I call him a guest of dishonor, as you will see, um, because they treat him dishonorably. And that is a man that you may have heard of by the name of Jesus Christ. And so this is the scene. And very early in the banquet, one of the uninvited, standing room only people becomes an intruder, and she interrupts the banquet. And she commits a very serious social faux pas, which absolutely offends Simon. It embarrasses him, and it creates... it. There's already tension in the scene, and now this brings the tension to a point of confrontation. And Jesus, as he usually does, leverages this moment to teach something, to address something about the kingdom of heaven. And so he steps into that moment, he tells a story, he establishes a principle, and then he reframes everything that happened up to that point through the eyes of that principle. And then the scene abruptly ends. And so if you wanted to organize this scene, there's an introduction. There's some actions by the intruding woman. Then Simon assesses the whole situation incorrectly. Then Jesus tells a parable. And then we work backwards. Now Simon assesses assesses the situation accurately. And then Jesus replays with his commentary the woman's actions of a few minutes ago, and explains them in light of the principle of the parable, and then there's a conclusion. So he does deal with, you're thinking, what does it have to do with money? He deals with, in his story, he uses the concepts of debt, creditors, loan payments, loan repayments, and debt cancellation. The Bible actually does talk about Debt, which I know you were hoping we'd spend just a lot of time today talking about consumer debt. But it's relevant, the most latest studies that we have as of December, the average American household has $35,000 of non-mortgage consumer debt. Car payments, loan payments, medical payments, visa payments, discover payments, MasterCard payment, American Express, keep going, Target card payment, whatever it is. Money that we owe that's not related to our mortgage. $35,000. To me, that's a lot of debt. That's a lot of money. I want you to know that the Bible does address debt. Lending, borrowing, and repaying loans was a concept familiar to the Jews at the time Jesus lived. In fact, the upper class of the Jews had wealth. And they recognized that not everybody had wealth, and they could make money on their money by loaning some of their wealth to people in a contract where they would agree to repay it with interest. And one of two things would happen. Either the lender would make money on getting their money back plus interest, or 
the person who borrowed from them would default and that would give the lender leverage over them to take anything that they wanted. So they understood the concept of debt. And what the Bible says basically about debt is be very shrewd and wise and careful about taking on debt. Doesn't say that all debt is evil. Doesn't say that all debt is righteous. But it speaks about being careful about what kind of debt you take on. Why? Because anytime you borrow money from somebody or some institution, they have a certain amount of control over you. They just do. Those 50 pages you have to, you probably don't read over them, you just scroll through them real quick and sign. When you're trying to borrow money that you don't have to buy a car, to buy an appliance, to buy a stereo, to buy a house, to go on a vacation, to buy whatever it is, the $10 you went in and planning to spend at Target and the $200 that landed in your cart. Anytime they they have these long agreements you have to read over and agree to to have permission to borrow money, you know why they're so long and they need to spell out exactly what will happen to you if you don't pay them back? Because you know why? Our yes doesn't mean yes and our no doesn't mean no anymore. Not everybody who agrees to borrow money actually plans to pay it back. Nobody in this room, of course. But it's unwise to put yourself in a position where somebody has that kind of influence over you. Where if you don't pay them back, they have the power to seize money in your bank accounts. To take your property. To garnish your wages. Have you heard of any of those terms before? Yeah. The Bible doesn't want you, because when you're in that kind of indebtedness, you gradually forfeit freedom, peace, and control over your life. Jesus understands how those concepts of debt, repayment, and being in a huge debt crater play in our lives, and he uses those familiar terms to build this story out as he he moves towards the end of it. So let's read through the whole story together. And then we'll go back through a, a second time a little more slowly and look at some details. I'll try not, I'll try to help, I'll try not to stop too much during this story. There's just sometimes where there might be a word or two that I want to make sure as you're getting, digesting the whole story that, that you really understand that word. Like I said, besides the parable of the 10 pa- talents, this is one of the most familiar ones to me. So I was feeling kind of like, okay, I don't know what I'm going to find in here this time. I've been through this parable so many different times. But you know, the Bible is living and it's active, and I started going through this this time, I'm like, holy spirit, I had no idea. There were all these little nuances in here. It didn't necessarily undo anything I had learned before. It added to it, added layers of understanding to it, Um, and I hope I can bring some of that, you know, I hope some of that can come up out of me into your ears today as we go through this. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him, and a question I already have is why? For what reason? What would motivate? Because even if you know just a tiny bit about Jesus' relationship with the Pharisees, usually those two guys didn't have meals together. They did not go grab a coffee at Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks. I don't want to offend anybody equal, you know, or make it at home on their Keurig. Uh, they, didn't soci- they didn't socialize a whole lot. But here, earlier on in Jesus' ministry, we see a Pharisee ask Jesus to come over for dinner. And I'm immediately thinking, why? Well, we find out a little bit later. So Jesus went. He went to his home and he sat down to eat. And here's what I'm going to break one of my rules, sat down. Now you realize the New Testament was not written in English, right? 
Most of the New Testament was written in what language originally? It was written in Greek. So the assignment that a lot of scholars have is we've got to translate the earliest manuscripts that we have into English. And there's sometimes just one Greek. Greek is a very specific language compared to English, which is very inexact. The actual Greek verb here for sat down to eat would be best translated reclined. Doesn't ruin the story, but I want you to understand there's a reason why I use it. When we think recline, I think of sitting in our lazy boy reclining couch, and my head goes back and my feet go forward, right? Have any of you reclined before? I can't tell. I know this is Baltimore, and sometimes I can't. So, okay, I got an amen, all right? Some of you are there, right? Now, think in this society, recline meant the opposite. Head came forward and feet went away. They went back. Why? Because in the from time immemorial until today, in the Orient and especially in the Middle East, feet socially were detestable. So when you would come into someone's house for a formal banquet like this, there were very specific and strict and commonly known roles that host and guest would play, and they were to be followed to a T. And the first thing as a guest that you would do is you would take off your shoes or your sandals, and you would leave them at the door. You would walk to the place where the host would invite you to sit. There would be low couches, and you would recline. You would lean forward on your left elbow with your feet away from the table, and then a servant would come to each guest and put a thin basin underneath your feet and pour water over it to wash the dust off of your feet from traveling. Every time, every guest, 100% of the time. So I just want you to understand that's the posture of everybody around the table. That's an important detail to come back to later. I'll go back to this. Now we have a very unfortunate way of identifying one of the non-invited guests. Here's how she's introduced. When a certain immoral woman from the city, she's not even called by her name. She's called by her reputation. She heard Jesus was eating there. And I'm thinking, how did she hear and why did it matter? It would only matter if she had some idea of who he was prior to this banquet. She hears that he was there. And so as a result of her hearing that he was there, she plans to do something. She brings a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Now, at least that detail. Does this now sound familiar? Have you heard this story before? Okay, you you probably know the plot. You know the basic thing that's going on. Let's keep reading. Then she knelt behind Jesus at his feet, weeping. And this is the part where the whole scene starts to unravel. I'll show you in a moment why there was already so much tension in the room you could cut it with a knife. Luke doesn't go into the detail here because the early readers would have understood already. But we miss out because we didn't grow up in that culture. She kneels behind Jesus at his feet, but now she's weeping. I've got tons of questions. First of all, how did she get into the banquet? How did she get access to Jesus? Why did she think in advance to bring a bottle of perfume? It's obviously premeditated. And now she's kneeling behind him at his feet. Why? How is she doing that? And why is she weeping? Her tears fall on his feet. This was unplanned because now she's got a problem. She'd obviously planned to do something, and in the process of doing what she came planned to do, she starts crying, which she hadn't planned. And we know she hadn't planned it because she's not prepared to deal with the tears. They're falling on Jesus' feet. 
Now, interestingly, we'll find out in a moment, he is the only guest at the table who the host has instructed the servants, don't wash his feet. You know, Larry, you go to him. Bob, you go to him. Jerry, you go to him. Skip over that guy. Do not wash his feet. Wash everybody else's feet. Jesus is the only one at the table who doesn't get their feet washed. Her tears fall on his feet, and she wipes them off with her hair. Important detail we'll come back to. Then she kept on kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. Awkward. This is just an awkward scene. All we know about her is that the people in the room know she is a certain specific immoral woman that they all know because she's from their hometown. It's a small town. Everybody knows everybody's business. And if you want to go back and do the Greek work again, the actual Greek language, when it says certain immoral woman from the city, actually, if you translate it out literally, would read something to the effect of a certain woman who is actively involved in plying her sinful trade among the city. Many people have posited that this is a prostitute, maybe Mary Magdalene herself. I don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. But everybody in the room seems to believe that she was somehow involved in some type of sexual sin and trade, and that's played out by a word Simon uses later. So you can imagine what they're thinking around the table. They're already thinking, like, look, we're Pharisees. We traffic among the people, but there's a strict do-not-touch rule about the Pharisees. Pharisees kept themselves ritually pure. And you're allowed to see them, but don't touch them, because if someone who wasn't ritually pure touched someone who was ritually pure, they, the ritually pure person was now unclean, and they had to go through this whole ritual sacrifice again. In other words, when you touch someone who is ritually pure, their purity didn't fall on you. Your dirtiness fell on them, which is an awesome illustration to understand the miraculous nature and the exchange of when sinful people touch Jesus that their sin went on him but did not, make his, did not make his sinful and his righteousness was imputed on them. It's a pretty cool thing. Anyway, she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. This is just an awkward scene. It's just awkward. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, this is a soliloquy. Those of you who like literature and Shakespeare, here's a guy talking to himself. And now in this, he reveals his motive for inviting Jesus in the first place. His motive, I'm going to find out if this guy really is the prophet everybody says he is. I'm going to test out his prophetness, his prophetitude, his prophetosity. I don't know. Prophetness. I'm going to see if he's a prophet. Well, if he really were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching, Greek word for sexual touching. I won't unpack that anymore. This kind of woman is seducing him. He would know. She's a sinner. This next five words deserves a whole sermon. Then Jesus answered his his thoughts. Here's good news for you this morning. Jesus knows all your thoughts. When you're talking to yourself, he hears you. And guess what? He can answer your thoughts. Yeah, and some of us are like, thank God, he even hears all the good things I think and I never say. And the rest of us are like, oh, no. <laughs> he, he hears all that. Yeah, you will never shock Jesus. You just can't do it. 
You won't surprise him. To use the analogy of the vision that Suba shared with us this morning, he knows what's on every sheet. He knows it all. He knows it all. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you, which in, uh, in that culture in the Aramaic language is roughly translated this way today. I have to tell you something that you don't need to hear, but it would be good for you to hear. Has anybody ever said something like that to you? You know, can I tell you something that you probably don't want to hear, but you need to hear it anyway? And usually what happens in my heart is when someone wants to lead off a conversation, that way my response is, I absolutely don't want to hear that. Bottle that mess up and don't ever tell me. But what usually comes in kind of, you know, cautiously and maybe insincerely tumbling out of my mouth is, absolutely, you can tell me anything. And I'm thinking, I really don't want to hear this. But he says, Simon, I've got something to say to you. And he says, go ahead. And now he calls him teacher, which is interesting. It indicates he knows Jesus is a teacher and Jesus deserves teacher treatment as a guest in his house. And as I'll show you in a minute, he has gotten no teacher treatment whatsoever. So here's the the, the short parable. Here's the scene. Jesus told Simon this story. Man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. Two different uh, debtors, one owes 10x the amount of the other. But here's the thing that's the same about both of them, verse 42. Neither of them had the ability to repay him. They were hopelessly in debt to Visa, right? So they have basically two options. You either are going to be taken over and your whole life garnished and absorbed by their creditor, which I tell you, we'll show the money in a minute. Even if they took all their possessions, wouldn't pay off the debt. They'd be thrown into prison until they died. Or throw yourself at the mercy of the court and hope that they just cancel the debt. Well, neither of those things happen. They don't throw themselves to the mercy of the court. They don't get thrown in jail. We find out that the, l- the lender was just kind and forgave them both and canceled their debts. Now think for a minute about your biggest debt. A house, a car, student loans, the last 19 cruises you went on, I don't know. And your biggest debt. Imagine tomorrow when you go to your mailbox, there's a certified letter in there from your creditor that says, you know, we were just having a good day today. We just decided to cancel your debt. Your balance is now zero, zero, zero. Enjoy your afternoon. How would you feel? Now, some of you will be like, I, I'm debt free already. But listen, I'll tell you for me, if, you know, if, if Citizens Bank decided to just cancel the debt on my mortgage, I'd have a pretty good day. Tell me, like, I, the money I'd go spend that afternoon? No, 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 no. But just out of kindness, he forgives both their debts. End of parable, verse 43. Jesus now asks Simon one study question. Simon, who do you suppose of those two debtors loved him more after that? Now, in your notes, we'll break, break this down. You need to see that Jesus is using a modified form of the Socratic method here to reason someone into a corner that they self-indict and recognize, okay, I see which character I am in the story. I know which of the two people I am and what he's telling about me. And Simon recognizes 
he's in the wrong here. He's being painted unfavorably. But his pride is just holding on. He's like, so there's but one answer to give, and he knows he needs to give it, or he's going to look dumb in front of his audience, but he doesn't want to fully fall on his sword. So here's his answer. I suppose... It's like my own boys when I finally outmaneuver them in an argument. happens once a year. And I finally have them cornered, and I'm like, yes, the next word out of their mouths is going to be a confession of guilt, and they're going to say, well, I guess I didn't have to throw the ball through the window. You know, like, he, I suppose the one who loves him more is the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. And in the Socratic method, what the person on this side of the argument would say, you've said rightly which is the original translation. Jesus just says, that's right. Good job, Simon. Probably a little sarcasm built into that, or at least the way I like to think of Jesus is that there's moments where sarcasm is appropriate because that makes me feel better. But anyway, moving on, verse 44. Then, this is a cool phrase. Then he turned to the woman. So he's looking at the woman, but who's he going to talk to? Simon. Now keep this in mind. He's going to talk to Simon. He's about to let Simon have it. He's about to do something you did not do And then, and you probably shouldn't do today, although some of us would, he is about to point out everything the host who invited him to dinner had done wrong since Jesus arrived. Every bad manner, every social oversight. He's about to go through all of the hospitality that Jesus didn't get when he got in and put that right in front of Simon publicly, but he's going to do it not while he's talking to Simon. He's going to do it while he's talking to the woman. Because his primary goal here is to lift her up in light of the principle. She's not here trying, she's not some sinner who's here trying to seduce Jesus. She's someone who has been forgiven a whole lot before she even got here. And she's motivated by love to come and do things for Jesus that Simon couldn't do. So he says, Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, every other guest who came through your door who sat down at your table, one of your servants washed their feet. But when I entered your home, I was the only one. You excluded me. You looked over me. You omitted me on purpose. You didn't offer me water to even wash the dust from my feet. You treated me beneath everybody else. But she has spectacularly compensated for your failure. And she has washed my feet with her tears. And then she let her hair down. And I know when she did that, according to the Talmud, when a woman in this community lets her hair down anywhere but before her husband on the honeymoon night, it is a capital offense punishable by death, and that's all you could see. And you thought this was a sexual thing for her, that she's trying to seduce me. This is a woman overcome by a love that's been triggered by something. You didn't wash my feet, and it was your responsibility, your minimal obligation. But no, you did for everybody else but me, and she compensated. Furthermore, verse 45, you didn't greet me with a kiss. Everybody else who came in here got the standard handshake in the Middle East, a kiss on both cheeks. And when it was my turn, you skipped over me. But from the time I first came in, so when did the woman arrive? Either a little bit before Jesus or at the same time. From the time I first came in, she's not stopped kissing my feet. You, Simon, neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, which everybody else at the table would have had. But she's anointed my feet with her rare perfume. Verse 47. I tell you, her sins, now this phrase is important, and they are many. He's 
owning the fact and admitting the fact he's not calling these sins that everybody seems to know about minimal. She's sinned a lot. And then he speaks in the past tense, which you have to catch this. They have been forgiven. In other words, before she came here today, I think Jesus is telling us, her sins have been forgiven. Because why would she come there? Why would she care to know who Jesus was if she had never met him? No, she must have heard from him before. There must have been a repentant heart before this when she heard one of Jesus' messages about forgiveness and purity and entering the kingdom of heaven. The conviction fell on her so strong that in her heart in that time she said to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus saying, her sins have already been forgiven. Therefore, or so, or as a result of that forgiveness, she's shown me much love. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, don't think that she jumped through all these hoops and because she performed and because she dumped out her perfume and because she kissed my feet and did a whole lot of good things, as a result of all those things, I've determined she deserves to be forgiven. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, out of my loving kindness, she's been forgiven and that forgiveness has triggered in her the love you see before you. You don't get forgiven because you love Jesus. You get forgiven because he is gracious. But when we are forgiven, that kind of forgiveness, when you realize your true debt, when you realize how hopeless our situation is for repaying it off, and when someone then just gives you grace that you don't deserve, we're wired. That triggers in us an uncommon love that just cascades out of us. And the more you understand what you've been forgiven of, the more naturally love is released in your life. So he's saying to everybody in the room, this is not seduction. This is love that's sprung from a forgiven heart because of a prior conversation or prior moment she had with Jesus. But a person who's forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman a puzzling phrase that people are torn up. How do we put verse 47 and verse 48 together? He says to the woman, your sins, present tense, are forgiven. So it leaves us with this question. Was she forgiven before that she intruded in this scene? Were her sins already forgiven before that moment? Or were they only forgiven in that moment as a result of what she did in real time? Was Jesus postponing the forgiveness until she completed this weeping and washing and perfuming? And I'll reconcile those two statements as best I can in just a moment. So he has basically just pointed out everything wrong with Simon. He's done something you never do in the Middle East. I violated my own rule. I said I wasn't going to do the commentary, but here we are. He's violated every single rule that you would do in the Middle East about men and women. Men in the Middle East, you didn't compare them unfavorably with a woman. And if you were going to do that, you didn't do it publicly. And you didn't do it in the presence of other men. He did it all. If you were a guest in someone's house and you were mistreated, you just absorbed it and you said nothing. You would never turn on the host and say, listen... Time out. Hey, where is the water for my feet? Where's the oil for my head? Something's missing here, you bad host. You would just absorb it. So Jesus seems to be at the end of his rant here, and that leaves everybody at the table trying to figure out, what do we do with this character? Like, what? He's just dropped the mic. Now what do we do? So verse 49, the, the men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that just goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, a phrase you don't usually hear until after the cross, which is why it's so remarkable to me. Your faith has, do you see those next two words? Saved you. 
Well, what was her faith in? We talk about today, you have to believe that Jesus can save you, that he will save you if you ask him, that you need to be saved. And we talk about what, what Paul said. You have to, you know, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that what? God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, had Jesus died and been raised from the dead yet? Hmm. But he says, your faith, So I ask her faith in what? We'll unroll that in a minute. Has saved you, go in peace. So this is a beautiful story and a train wreck of a story at the same time. Let's go back to verse 36. We'll walk through it one more time. If I've left anything hanging here. I do need to let you know that, you know, when you think about this banquet, this was not an unusual thing. Pharisees had study dinners a lot. They broke themselves up into small groups, and they would regularly get together at somebody's house, and the Pharisees would be the distinguished guests. They would be invited, and they would follow the strict rules of host and guest. They would recline around low couches, gathered around food at a table, but the community was welcome to come inside, to just wander in. They would leave all the doors to the wealthy Pharisees' home open, and they would invite anybody from the community to have a standing room only you know, seat or standing in these meals for two reasons. If you, if you are going through tough times financially, you'd be allowed to receive leftovers at the end of the meal. And secondly, you had access to the teaching. You weren't welcome to participate, but you had access. It was this type of a fractured community that was common in the Jewish world. The Pharisees lived among the people, but not among the people. You could see them, but not touched them, they considered themselves superior because they followed all these rules to a T. They were set apart. They were more holy. They were more acceptable to God, and they could not defile themselves by even being touched physically by someone from the community, but they were just open enough to allow them to come in the house because better to be seen in your seat of honor than to be excluded from that. And so it's that type of a scenario that makes it possible for this woman to gain access. But what makes it so offensive, we would miss. Now, I grew up in the western part of the world. I realize in our, you know, church faith community, we're from all over the world. So I don't want to assume that everyone comes from a western background. I grew up in the western part of the world in a European family of German descent in a small uh, We moved around a lot, small town in Pennsylvania. We lived for the first part of my life up until like uh, sixth grade-ish, lived in a, in a trailer behind the little church that my dad pastored. Five parents and myself, my sister and my brother. And often we would have company over to eat after church on Sunday. Usually if there was a missionary there or a special guest, they'd come over to eat. We'd have pop, people from the community come over to eat. And I realized that manners of being a host and being a guest in someone's home might not be standard in our world. Let me just speak from my experience. There were some basic manners that we learned in our house for how we were to treat guests when they came into their home. First of all, the guest would knock on the door. The guest wouldn't just walk into the house. They'd knock on the door. One of us would not yell out to them, it's open. We'd come and open the door. We would say hello. We would welcome them in. Then there'd be some sort of like a handshake or if it was family, it was a hug. We would offer to take their coats. If they had coats, then we'd pile them up on one of our beds. We'd invite them to come in and sat, sit down. And somebody from our family would ask them if they'd like something to drink. And we'd hey, we have water and iced tea or lemonade, whatever we have. And we'd serve everybody. 
That was just basic. That's how it worked. Now imagine you were invited over to my house, you and two other people. All three of you arrive at the same time. You knock on the door. I come to the door. I open the door. I welcome the first two guests in. And when you get ready to walk through the door, I just close the screen door right there. I leave the storm door open so you can watch, but I leave you there. And I say to these other, I I shake their hands. I give them both a hug. Can I please take your coats? I take her coat. I take his coat. I pile them up. Please come sit down in the kitchen. I have them come and sit down. And you're watching through the screen door like, what is going on? What, What would you like to drink? I'd like water. What would you like? I'd like lemonade. We get the thing. We serve them. And then we all sit down. And you're still out there like, what is going on? And so you're like, well, do I go home or do I... This might be an oversight. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. You open the door. You let yourself in. And you're like, hello. And we all just look up and we acknowledge and we wave. And you're standing there with your coat on. And you're like, well, maybe somebody's going to come take my coat. Some of you would be like, listen, who's going to take my coat? You just cut right through the awkward and make some more awkward. Where you're the author of the awkward, not the victim of the awkward, right? That's a whole other psychological conversation for another day. You say, all right, I'm just take my own coat off. I'll go put it over in the other room. And you come back out, and you wait to be invited to sit down. No one acknowledges. You sit yourself down, and you're looking, well, everybody else has been served. Everybody else has a drink, and I don't. Wouldn't you be, like, a little bit weirded out by all that? Offended, angry, ashamed, embarrassed, some combination of all of the above. How long would you wait until you spoke up? I hear, I hear you mumbling, Deanna. Would it, would it have already been addressed at this point? Oh, yeah. How many of you would be like, I just absorb it until I, you know, I just absorb it the whole time through. I don't want to make a scene. How many of you have a, like a point where it would be like something would be said? How many of you don't know because you're just so cringy even thinking about it? You just are not sure what would happen. Okay. This is essentially in their day how they treated Jesus according to Jesus' own words and according to the woman's reaction. All of the things that were absolutely expected and that had been shown obviously to the other guests because Jesus says, I'm the one you didn't do this for. Every other guest except Jesus had their feet. That's a calculated decision by a host. That's not an omission. Everybody else got the handshake but Jesus. And the whole crowd sees it as do the other guests. They all see Jesus as the only one that no servant washed his feet. They all see he is the only one who doesn't get his head anointed with oil. He is intentionally being singled out as not even worthy of the most meager level of hospitality. And then you have this certain immoral woman who heard, verse 37, that he was eating there. And why did that even matter? To her. Why did hearing that Jesus was going to be at this banquet trigger in her a set of reactions that says, I need to go. I need to take, I need to find the most valuable thing that I have and take it with me. And I need to, I need to somehow bring him a form of love or a form of worship. Why? Because most scholars agree that the whole reason for this banquet was that both the Pharisees and the community had heard Jesus preach and teach. And normally the Pharisees would invite a special guest to their banquet to come and talk theology. And so it's very likely to assume, based on the fact that the Pharisees invited Jesus in to see if he was really a good prophet or not, 
and the woman's behavior. She must have heard Jesus teach, or hearing that he was there wouldn't have done anything to her, especially triggered a reaction to her and says, I love this man, and I need to go show him. I need to go show him how much he's worth to me, how much I appreciate him, how much I love. I need to publicly identify with him. He's done so much for me. Well, when did that all happen? It happened before this banquet. She, this sinful woman, must have heard some message to Jesus about sin and debt and hopelessness and forgiveness and repentance. And I think you'll see by her actions, which is the truest form of knowing, well, how do we know if someone's really been, you know, been forgiven? They love. How do we know if someone has repented? They turn away from their actions. Well, you're going to see both of those things in the story. All the evidence you need to see of a woman that's been forgiven and who has a repentant heart already in place tumbles out in the next part of the story. She brings with her a beautiful alabaster jar filled with an expensive perfume. That was not uncommon for women to wear it. It would have been in a jar. It would have been carried around their necks. It was for two reasons. One, to give fragrance to their body. Two, to give fragrance to their breath. And so you can imagine if her trade was as we think it was, how valuable that would have been to her. That would have been not only her most prized possession that she had in terms of its monetary value, because the Bible says it was expensive, but also probably the most necessary tool of her trade in order to gain income for herself through, through her trade in the city. And so, what does she, so she has some premeditated thought. I'm going to go and anoint him, presumably his head with this. Because nobody went out planning to anoint someone's feet with perfume. If you were going to anoint somebody, you were going to anoint their head. So she shows up that day wanting to bring some special sacrifice, some special offering to Jesus. Why? She was motivated by love. Why? Because she was forgiven. When? Before this banquet. You put it all together? You with me? Okay, two-thirds of you. The other third, come back. Okay, 38, verse 38. She knelt behind him at his feet. Now do you understand why? He was the only one who had no one kneeling behind him at his feet. She's watching this whole offensive scene play out. She's watching someone who in her world, every time she thinks of her own past, Jesus just seems bigger to her. He seems more gracious, more loving. Every time she reflects on how she used to look at herself, how she used to feel about herself in light of how much she had been forgiven of, Every time she reflects on that, Jesus' grace just seems bigger to her. And the more she reflects on what she's been forgiven of, the more she loves him. Love is the natural, unplanned, unsolicited response to that type of grace. She kneels behind him and she starts weeping. Why? I think because of a combination of things. Number one, out of love for Jesus, but number two, probably out of some anger for how they're treating Jesus and how broken it makes her feel. Watch the person you love the most be bullied. Watch the person you love the most be mistreated. Watch them be pushed down and squashed down. And the whole time, everybody in the room is thinking, when is Jesus going to snap? When is he going to let Simon have it? And he's just biting his lip and biting his lip and biding his time and waiting. And overcome by a number of things, she now steps into the scene. And she kneels down and she takes the place of one of the servants. And where she was prepared to anoint his head, she's kneeling down at his feet. And now something she wasn't prepared for happens. She wasn't prepared to weep and she wasn't prepared to wipe his feet. Why? She brought no towel. She brought no basin. She thinks ahead. If she planned to wash his feet, 
She would have brought that stuff with her. And she would have never thought, you know what, I'm just going to go up to some, some dude that I know and just wash his feet. That's the servant's job, not her job. But she steps in. She is spectacularly compensating for the failure of the host. She's bailing him out of a situation. And she starts to weep. And then, you know, she would have had to let her hair down, let the tresses of her hair down to wipe the feet, which in that day and age, women only wore their hair up. Because to let your hair down was a sign of intimacy only reserved for your husband and only for the honeymoon night. For a woman in that day, according to the Talmud, to let your hair down in public or before any other man was a capital offense punishable by death. She's not thinking about all that. She lets her hair down and she keeps kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. Then Simon's soliloquy, he miscalculates here. He gets a couple things wrong. Here's his whole motive. He wants to find out if Jesus is really a true prophet. And here's his thought process. If Jesus was a prophet, then he knows everything or he can see into things. And if Jesus was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. That word for touching is a sexually suggestive word. So his first thought that he got wrong was, if Jesus was a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman this is and he obviously doesn't know what kind of woman it is. Second, If he knows what kind of woman this is, he would not allow her to touch him, thus defiling him. Because her bad is getting on his good, and now he's dirty. And if he knew how dirty she really was, he wouldn't let her do it. And the only reason he he wouldn't know what kind of woman he is is what woman she is is because he's not a good prophet. Or even if he is a prophet and he does know what kind of woman he is, he's a flawed prophet because he's welcoming these seductive caresses from this dirty woman. Therefore, since he doesn't stop her, he must not be a prophet. And furthermore, she's a sinner. There's another possibility he didn't entertain. Here's the other possibility. That she's not a sinner anymore, that she's been forgiven. Number two, uh, another possibility is that Jesus does know who she is. He does know her story. He does know why she's touching him the way that she is. He does know from what motive it's driving all this, and he welcomes it, and he he is justified in his actions to allow her to do this. But Simon doesn't entertain any of those possibilities. Why? Because he's a good religious guy, and he's above all that. And in this story, we see a very sobering reminder to all of us in God's family that it's not God's desire that anybody in his family thinks they are superior to anyone else. And it's not his desire that any of us live feeling that we are inferior to anyone else. And we don't talk about that enough. We hammer down, don't look down, don't look down, don't look down as well we should. But then there's a part of us, you are stunted in your spiritual growth because you spend your whole life disqualifying yourself, saying, I don't belong, I don't belong, I don't deserve, I don't belong, I'm not as good as. Stop that. Let Jesus love you. Let him love you. Stop giving him reasons why you're unlovable. You're not going to convince him to stop. Let him love you because unless or until you do, you won't have a surplus of his perfect love to give away to others. You need to let him love you right as you are, right where you are. And there's another dynamic here. There's two dynamics here that are going on that, oh, I'm out of time. There's two dynamics here that are going on. I'll just give them to you quickly. Have you ever seen represented factually or in a commercial, where when someone commits to giving up drinking, have you ever seen them take the bottle and and just empty it all out? What are they indicating when they do that? I'm done, I don't want it, and I don't need it anymore. 
What do you think the woman is saying to her community when she takes the tool of her trade and she empties it out? I am done with that. That's who I was. That's not who I am. I don't need it anymore, and I mean so much. I'm going to take all the monetary value, everything I invest in this, and everything I need it for, and I'm going to pour it out. She's distancing herself from her past. That's a repentant heart. It says, not only do I feel bad and know what I did was wrong, but I've had a change of heart. I am repenting from that. It's not just saying, Lord, I know what I did is wrong, but I'm planning to go back to it tomorrow. I just want to get some some fire insurance for today. It's saying, I've had a change of heart about what I am and what I've done, and I'm distancing myself from that. Second dynamic that's going on here is Jesus recognizes there is an us and them mentality about how religion operated in the Jewish culture. They're the haves and the have-nots, the insiders and the outsiders. Here's what he recognizes. This woman, now that she's saved, listen, listen, please listen to me here. If you've zoned out, come back for this moment, please. People who are outside of God's kingdom that know that they're sinners, once they come to once they come into salvation, come in a relationship with God, they need a new community of friends. Is this woman going to go back to the men in her Rolodex? She's already living an isolated life where everybody in the community knows who she is. She's wanting, she's experienced forgiveness and repentance. And the community that should be welcoming her in is still calling her a sinner. And she needs a community. And Jesus is trying to help them see through the lens of the kingdom of heaven, not through their own lens of spiritual pride. That she's not a sinner like Simon says. Who Simon says. Oh, I should have thought of that earlier. Oh, that would have been great. Could have done a whole thing on Simon says. Well, eight years from now, we'll get back to it. Um, She's a sinner. He was wrong. Jesus says, I have something to say to you. He says, go ahead. He tells the story. There's two debtors, one lender. One debtor gets 500 pieces, borrows 500 pieces of silver. The other one borrows 50. Let's just cut to the chase. We're not going to convert that to today's dollars. Here's the point Jesus is making. Let's put it in today's vernacular. Two debtors. One owes 10 times the other. One debtor owes Visa $5 billion. The other owes Visa $500 million. First of all, if you owe Visa that much, congratulations. That is quite an accomplishment. I don't know how you did that. Some of you are like, give me an afternoon and I could, no, that's a lot of money. But here's the point I'm making. If you owe the lesser of those two $500 million and you want to say like, listen, Visa, I know um, I, I've run up the limit on my platinum card here, um, but put me on a payment plan. And they're like, okay, how much do you make? I make $75,000 a year. How many years will it take you to pay off $500 million at $75,000 a year? 2.7 bajillion years, I did the math. You don't have enough life to pay it off. It is unpayable. The point Jesus is making is whether you owe him, whether the one debtor owed him 500 million or 5 billion, neither of them could pay it off. What's the point if you owe someone 500 million? We might as well owe them 10 billion, right? And some of you are thinking, thank you, pastor. I am in debt. I'm gonna go out this afternoon and just shop. Do not do that. That's not what I'm saying. The point Jesus is making is that to To the two characters in the story, the one who owed the bigger debt compared to the one who owed the smaller debt, the person with the smaller debt didn't see their debt as that big of a deal. But the one with the big debt really understood their true scenario. They saw the hopelessness of it. But here's where Jesus levels the story. Reality is, yeah, they had two different debts, 
but both of them were unpayable. Some people sin more than other people, but we all are indebted to Jesus, a debt we can't pay. Every single sin amasses a debt to God, and each sin has a value on it. It is one perfect, sinless life. If you've sinned once a day for the last year, you owe Jesus... You know, God, the Father, you owe him 365 perfect sinless lives. Now, let's say that you succeed in living a perfect sinless life, and you want to pay off your debt. You, after you've given the one life you've got, you're still going to owe him 364 more perfect lives. Why are you saying all that, Phil? You need to understand the hopelessness of the human heart. Until you do, you won't appreciate your Savior. Until you come to that point of hopelessness, you won't value grace. And until you come to that point of hopelessness and reconciliation of the debt of your own heart to God, you can't possibly be set up to love him like this woman loved him because you don't think you need it. Jesus says one looked far more indebted than the other, but neither of them could repay it. So out of kindness, not based on performance, out of kindness of the lender, he forgave them both and canceled both of their debts. And now he speaks to Simon's flawed heart. Who do you suppose loved him more? And Simon knows he's trapped. I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus says. So he's illustrated a principle. Those who are forgiven much, love much. Because forgiveness triggers love. Those who are forgiven little, love little. So was he saying that Simon had been forgiven? Boy, this is going to be tough. Let me get it out. Simon had been forgiven little? Because he had sinned little? Is he saying Simon had been forgiven little because he had confessed and repented of little? Is he saying Simon had been forgiven little because Simon misestimates the amount of sin he needs forgiveness for? I don't know. But that's how we end up in that condition. The only way you're forgiven little is if you confess and repent of little. And the only reason you would confess and repent of little is because you haven't taken an honest assessment of your heart. You're in denial. You're not convicted. Your conscience has been seared. Because this is, I know, I know about this. Jesus, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive you of your sins. The only reason they're not forgiven is because they're not confessed. The only reason they're not confessed is because there's not conviction in response. And so you work it backwards that way and leads you to one of a couple of different conclusions about Simon. But here's how Jesus wraps the whole thing up. He reframes everything they saw. He's saying, Simon, you've asked me to look at the situation. Now I'm asking you to look at the situation. I'm asking you to look right at this woman, not as a sinner, but as a sister. And I want you to see all the things that she is that you're not. And I want to tell you why. She came here, and from the moment I entered your home, you didn't offer me water. She did. 
The moment I came in, she anointed my feet. You didn't anoint my head. She did. You wouldn't kiss me on the cheek. And she's not kissed me on the cheek. She's not even considered herself worthy to approach my face, but she's kissed my feet. Now, why has she done that, Simon? Is it because she's weird? Is it because she's trying to seduce me? Is it because she needs attention? No, there's only one reason that explains this. She has already been forgiven much. And it's triggered in her a love that she's never experienced before. And this is making its way out to me. It is the proof that she was once a sinner. She has repented and she's been forgiven and that should be welcomed and honored and celebrated. The only way I can make this relatable is to explain to you uh, in a minute the relationship between my oldest son and my grandma, his great grandma now because she lives pretty far away from us in a place that's not easy to get to. We have not, we don't see her as often as our family that's here. In fact, my 11 year old has only met her face to face once when he was five years old. But before that he was five, when he was old enough to understand getting cards in the mail, he and Grandma Now, or Grandma Pat, great-grandma Pat, she would write him these lovely handwritten notes and letters, and we'd read them to him. And she'd never miss a birthday. She'd never miss Christmas. She'd send him cash in the mail. She'd send him a gift in the mail. And, um, and he had never met her. He never hugged her. He never filled her heart with a, you know, with a, you know, it, it never happened. But she just... She just loved him and kept loving him and loving him and doing kind things for him that he didn't feel like he deserved. He was just building up this welled-up love because she had treated him with such grace and such kindness, and he would write back and forth and send her little pictures in the mail. Well, finally, there was a family wedding uh, that we were able to make it to. I think it was somewhere near Erie, Pennsylvania, which if you've ever made that drive, it's not a short drive from here. It's a long drive, but when he was five, we packed him up and we drove up there, and for the first time, he got to meet Grandma Pat, and I remember he got out of the car, and she was standing at the church, which was probably from here to the exit sign. We just said, over there is Grandma Pat, and my son, at that point, and still to this point, in social situations, at first, he's very reserved. We said, that's Grandma, great Grandma Pat over there. He let go of our hand and took off running. He never did this. He took off and ran up to her, and he just gave her the biggest hug. Like, we didn't tell him, listen, here's the way you get even better gifts from, gifts from Grandma Pat. When you see her, oh, buddy, you hug her, and you love on her, and you give her kisses. It was an unrehearsed, genuine, sincere outpouring of his love to somebody that he didn't even realize he was waiting to get out of him until he saw her. And then everything that she meant to him just flowed out into a natural expression of love that to those of us who looked through the lens and knew the relationship, it was not an intrusion. It was not a break of protocol. It was just a pure, lovely moment. I don't know how else to explain this woman's actions except through that image. She had heard as part of a crowd, a message of forgiveness and had experienced it for herself and knew what it was like to feel years. I don't know if you, some of you don't know what this is like. I do, unfortunately. I wish this wasn't my story. I'm the one who owed five billion in the story. I know what it's like to accumulate hopeless debt to Jesus. I know what it's like to wear that on me and think that there are not enough I'm sorry's in the world to ever undo that weight. I know what it's like to be told by insiders, you don't belong because of what's on your record. I know that and I understand it. I'm not even mad at people for thinking like that because I don't deserve that. I don't have a squeaky clean past. I wish I did. You want to know why I love Jesus? Why I don't have 
when it's not an effort for me to sing to him, to lift my hands, to pray. It's not because I'm some superior Christian. It's simply because I'm aware of how much I'm indebted to him and how gracious he's been to me and how much I don't deserve. And I want to give him the best that I have because I can't help it. I'm not saying go out and sin a whole lot so you can experience him. You don't sin a whole lot so you can experience grace. The response to grace is not disobedience, it's love. And Jesus is saying this is the big difference between you and her. She's been forgiven much. She's not been forgiven because she anointed my feet. She anointed my feet because she's been forgiven. She's not forgiven because she showed me such deference and hospitality. She showed me such deference and hospitality because that is the result of being given a grace you don't deserve and having your shame and your past washed over and having a new life and not even knowing what to do with it other than just let it pour out of you. Verse 45, you didn't greet me with a kiss. You neglected the courtesy of oil. Verse 47, I tell you, her sins, they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love, but a person who's forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Why does he say her sins were forgiven or have been forgiven? Past tense. And then he comes and says present tense to her. Your sins are forgiven. You can look at different arguments, but here's where I feel like I land. Sometimes you, I don't know how to explain this to you unless you've not experienced this. Sometimes when you when you really get a handle on the depth of your sin, even though you've asked Jesus to forgive you, and you know in your mind he has, sometimes you need him to persuade you that he really hurt you. Have you ever asked God to help you feel forgiven for sins you've already repented of and you still feel guilty about them? Maybe you haven't. That's my, part of my own journey and my own mental health journey. I'm very hard on myself when I stumble, when I sin, when I fall short of God's standards and my standards. And I can see him saying this woman, your sins have been forgiven, but I see you here today and Jesus just discerned. Maybe you just need me to remind you, sweetheart. Listen, I've not changed my mind since the other day. You're still forgiven. You don't need to repent anymore. You don't need to keep asking me to forgive you. You're asking me to forgive you for sins, and when we go back and look on that page, I don't see the sin written there. I just see blood over that. I see perfect blood. I see payment for that. You've been forgiven. And I want to just remind you that today. Sometimes when you're one of the egregious sinners, the sins that are many, you have a hard time accepting Jesus' forgiveness because you feel like you should pay more. And so you punish yourself somehow by refusing to accept grace because you don't deserve it. Friend, listen, you don't deserve it. And let me tell you, punishing yourself won't work. Won't make you feel better. You think you, okay, I'm off the track, but I'll just land here because I feel like I need to say this. Here's what happens. There's a way to process sin in such a way that says, yeah, I know I did bad. I have no leverage. I deserve punishment. And since I'm not getting punishment from Jesus, he's only giving me grace. There's no justice until I've been punished. So I will punish myself. I'll change the way I eat. I'll change the way I look. I'll change the way I feel about myself. I will deny grace. I'll keep refusing it. I'll keep reminding myself that I'm a sinner. And here's what you think, that if I do that enough, I'll eventually pay off my debt and I'll feel better. Let me just tell you, you won't. You can't pay that off. Receive his grace. I don't deserve it. Exactly. Receive it. Enjoy it. Let it change you. Let it repair the way you view yourself. 
Because there's no sense in you harboring unforgiveness towards you when Jesus has already forgiven you and is ready to walk forward. He's waiting on you. And I see him saying to this woman, listen, sweetheart, don't let these men around the table make you feel like the forgiveness process is incomplete because they won't receive you into their community. If they won't, you don't need them anyway. Your sins are forgiven. And then the people around the table, what kind of a guy is this? Just goes around and forgives everybody. He says, your faith has saved you. What kind of faith? I'll read it to you. I love this quote. Written in the 1890s, a man by the name of Wilcock. Thy faith, which anticipated pardon in advance from me and brought thee to me with public signs of penitence and love, hath saved you. She couldn't believe in his death and resurrection, but you know what she, her faith was in? He'll pardon me if I ask him, and he can pardon me. And what do we say you need to be saved? You need to know that you need to be saved, that Jesus can save you, that he will save you if you ask him. There it is, all in one person. So as the worship team comes, here's our three application statements. Number one, an understanding of my personal indebt. I made up a word, indebtedness. I know that's not a real word. Indebtedness to God produces in me a hopelessness. That only a gracious God can resolve. That's a word salad right there. I realize that. I don't have time to unpack that. But I promise you, if you roll that over in your heart, that walks you through the terrifying and the beautiful process of wrestling with your own salvation. I have to grab onto the fact that I am indebted to God more than I deserve because if you don't think you need him, you won't cling to him like a savior. Then you need a mentor, a mascot, Someone who can cheer you up. You don't need a savior. When I'm drowning and I know I can't get out, I need a savior. I recognize I am indebted to God beyond my wildest understanding. And I recognize there's a hopelessness in that. And then grace comes in and resolves the whole thing. Secondly, this story shows me. There's only two resolutions to unpayable debt. Prison and death or forgiveness. Those are the options Jesus puts out to all of us. He helps us see through the Holy Spirit we're indebted to him. We're wrong, we're broken, and we deserve justice. We have one or two options. We either just say, hey, come and try and collect from me, and I'll try and pay it off. Well, that's going to lead you to prison and death because you can't, or forgiveness. Those are the only two options we have, and that's what Jesus puts in front of us. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And forgiveness comes as part of that benefits package. The story shows us that. And then number three. Forgiveness triggers sincere acts of love for grace received. I love much because I've been forgiven much. If you feel stuck in those feelings, work through that process. Lord, are there areas of my life where I need your forgiveness, but I've been unaware or unwilling to surrender those things, to confess those things to you? Reflect on the hopelessness of the human heart's ability to make things right with God. Allow those things to sink in there. They will trigger sincere acts of love, not for performance rendered, but for grace received. Let me pray over you this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you recognizing our deep indebtedness to you. Thank you for reminding us again that you want to bring us into community. You don't want to leave us as we are. I also thank you that there's none of us that has sinned so much that we're outside the bounds of your forgiveness. I'm so thankful for how you lifted up 
the woman in this story, how you refuse to allow her community to continue to call her by her previous deeds, but you lifted her up and gave her dignity and a new life and a new reputation. You pointed out the character change in her life that wasn't her... uh, rehearsed behavior intended to sway your opinion you showed that it was the evidence of a repentant heart that had already received forgiveness through you and this was the outworking of that in her own life jesus help us to be the type of community that welcomes in people as brothers and sisters in christ and that we don't label people by their past but we call them by their name If there's anyone here this morning or watching online or listening by podcast and you know that you're not prepared to stand before God on judgment day because there is unconfessed sin in your life, you have not surrendered, you have not confessed, you've not made up your mind about what you believe about God and Jesus, you've not aligned your life with the reality of who he is, this is your moment. And I ask you today, would you like Jesus to save you right now? Would you like for him to forgive you? And the questions are simply this, do you believe you need to be saved? Do you believe Jesus can save you? Do you believe he will save you if you ask him? And are you ready today to turn away from living by your rules and surrender your life to God's leadership? If the answer of your heart to those things is yes, 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 then all you need to do is put those things in your own words and tell them to Jesus right now. Go ahead, use your words and tell that to him. It can be a prayer as simple as, Jesus, I have sinned and I know I need to be saved. You can save me. Save me today, Jesus. Please forgive me for my sins. Come live inside of me and change me. I choose to live under your leadership and I turn away from living life the way I see best. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with Him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.